Card presents Back Issue Bloodpath with your hosts, Andrew Young and Petula Neal. A number one issue that sold more copies than any other comic sold ever. An end of an era, a start of a new chapter, a rebranding that would not only affect the characters going on for the next decade, but also their trip into another media franchise. This is X-Men. This is Back Issue Bloodbath, and I'm Andrew Young. I'm Batula Neal. Yeah, so this week we are looking, going all the way back to 1991 to talk about one of the pillars, one of the big moments in X-Men history. And that was the release of X-Men number one, and of course, the start of Jim Lee's X-Men. Today we're looking at the first seven issues, the Mutant Genesis storyline, and the follow-up story, Omega Red. Now, Petula, like 1991, like this comic came out, it was a super huge deal. Did you see this comic when it hit stands? Did you hear about it? Did you read it? I don't think that I read the whole thing then, but I do definitely feel like this version this visual version of the characters imprinted on me so i think i probably browsed slash hung out at the corner store till they kicked me out mm-hmm. at least a couple of the issues in this series in that half when it was still claremont on it right okay in the first, yeah. somewhere in the first three issues totally yeah 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 because that was the thing this was this was a big deal because of course it gave the X-Men kind of a rebranded look. It was bringing back a lot of X-Men that hadn't been in the book for a while and pairing them up with the current team and kind of going, here is the X-Men going forward with redesigns on certain costumes like Cyclops, Jean Grey, Rogue. They all got updates to their look in, in this story. The Rogue look in this one in particular is what set off something in my hindbrain. Mm. This version of Rogue is the version that someone drew for me a few years after this came out, but not long after it came out, when I believe I was pinging on their gaydar before I knew that that was a thing I was doing. Ah. Yes. And it so it was another lady, and it was a very nice drawing. The interaction didn't end perhaps the way they wanted, but that picture of Rogue that they drew is... <sighs> I mean, it probably helped them get in my pants. I'm not going to lie. There you yeah. go. There you go. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my God. But, yeah, that's the, the thing. Yeah, the rogue, that rogue look, of course, would become iconic with the release a couple of years later of X-Men, the animated series, which very much took from the visual style of Jim Lee's version of the X-Men. And I just want to go back a little bit into time here and talk about what was happening with the X-Men at the time. Of course, Chris Claremont had been on the book for 16 years he'd been writing uncanny x-men and bob harris was kind of wanting to use x-men as his showpiece because it's been a top-selling book for over a decade marvel's number one title and he wanted to bring on hot young artists onto the book and give them the opportunity to plot their own stuff and everything like that but he had the claremont problem in his mind bob harris didn't like the fact that Claremont had evolved the X-Men to something that was very different from when he started. 
Well, if you're on the book for 16 years, you're going to take the characters on a journey or you're going to get bored. So, of course, Claremont took them to Australia. Claremont took them to space. Claremont split them all up using the Siege Peerless to make them all forget who they were and, you know, show up with different looks. Like, of course, like, think about Psylocke. She ended up in the body of Quanin from this story and everything like that. He was doing some crazy stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and also being upset that of all characters, the X-Men evolved and changed. Hilarious. Yeah, it's uh, hilarious. Yeah. Was all of it great? No, but at least the mother was trying things. Yeah. Like taking swings, doing like your whole play set of toys here is characters who can do weird things. And then you have this built in puberty angle where you can also introduce new characters yeah. that can do other strange things. Or if you kill off somebody, just introduce somebody with a similar character, like a power set. It is very much a thing that you see at so many companies where it's like one person behind the scenes starts to get too much in their mind power, but it's not power. It's like they're good at their job. They did yeah. the damn thing. They exactly. It was a top selling for. book. It wasn't like he went down the charts. He was at the top. Yeah. This is almost like somebody buying something like that's really popular. That everybody loves and just ruining it for lulls because they want to like say, I can do this thing better or I'm the reason this thing is good. And this is like every reorg at every company I've ever worked at. Like, <laughs> oh, this is fine. Let's change it. Or I feel like children who really like sports are actually weirdly prepared for the corporate world in that you have a favorite team and then all of a sudden there's a new owner or manager and things that were good or worked well change for no reason. Yeah. yeah. He I was guess. a child. And then like once that happens a couple of times, you're like, oh, it's like a change in like management. And then the new manager wanted to bring in their own people. And sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And you just have to deal with that. And like, do I still love the thing? Do I still love X-Men? Yes. Is this like a time of great upheaval? Also, yes. Yeah. And so what happened was that Bob Harris was like, he wanted to bring Jim Lee and Wills Portacio. Jim Lee, of course, was doing art on Uncanny X-Men. And Wills Portacio was also doing uh, various books at Marvel. And he wanted to make them the big superstars of the X-Division and wanted to branch out the franchise with a new X-Men series to go along with Uncanny X-Men, thinking, well, if one X-Men book sells really well, two X-Men books should sell really well. So he decided to shake up the franchise and I'm going to read from uh, Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe, which came out in 2012. He said, with franchise-wide changes, Harris now had the opportunity to solve a problem that had been nagging him. Claremont's stories about aliens and magic just weren't pleasing him. They didn't seem like the kind of tales the uncanny X-Men did best. With constant whisperings in his ear, Harris made his move. Portacio and Lee would now plot the X-Men stories together, with Claremont writing the dialogue over the artwork. Portacio on Uncanny X-Men and Lee on X-Men. Now, it's interesting here because Claremont is a guy who's always worked in the Marvel style in the sense that he writes out a one-page plot, hands it to the artist, the artist draws it out the way they see fit, and then he dialogues it. Basically, they were like, hey, that first part, we're taking that away, and you're just going to be dialoguing the thing. And Lee, of course, he's a very detailed artist. Like he was kind of the guy that kind of made like all the multiple lines and definition, like a thing at Marvel during the nineties, because he's so detailed, he works a lot slower than other guys at this time. Right? So he's missing deadlines and Claremont is only getting like three pages at a time to dialogue. And this 
this made Claremont really unhappy with the position going, how am I going to work off these two guys who are moving at a snail's pace? And he basically went to Harris and was like, let me just write the first three issues of X-Men and then I'll be out of your hair. I won't be on either books. You'll be happy. You'll get what you want. And I'll get to like send the X-Men off the way I see fit in my mind. So they agreed on that and they sat down to do the work. And what came out was a pretty interesting three-story arc. Let's talk a little bit about the story itself. It kind of, for the first time X-Men reader, it kind of resets the table of like, hey, I don't have the 30 years of X-Men knowledge. You can kind of get it all in these three issues. Here's the thing. Claremont has done a lot of interesting things. He's done a lot to, and sometimes weird ways with Psylocke, introduce people from other backgrounds. Yeah. But I'm going to say the combination of his energy and then what they did with the art on this, Magneto has never been hotter. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God, y'all. Like, here's the thing. Even if you don't want to read this, just try to, like, Google image search, like, X-Men 1991 Magneto. It is, I mean, we all know right now our canonical genre daddy is Pedro Pascal, regardless of what you want to watch, play, <laughs> enjoy. This is, like, your OG. This is your daddy daddy. Like, this Magneto was just doing it all, like, villainous, but for the right reasons. He is the proto- like X was right. Like Thanos was right. Killmonger was right. Yeah. Like this is that energy. He's even hey, clad in, in comics, purple in a panel. It's yeah. really funny because this yeah. storyline in later storylines birthed the Magneto was right line. So there you go. <laughs> it is. It is that. But and it's also just like a lot of our favorite fellas are giving like good daddy version. We still have like a white Nick Fury, but he's. He's serving like almost like a top hat and tails, but without the top hat kind of look. Just <laughs> hand on the hip, cocked with his just shiny eye patch. Just serving looks. So this is like a kind of good and bad thing where you know that Lee is coming in hot with probably all these ideas and energy and excitement. And Claremont's giving the, this is my swan song. This is my retirement, like, gray album white album black album jay-z situation like this is it like <laughs> yeah this is happening and you know it's not the end of something it feels like a beginning and an end but it's just every panel is just stuffed with energy but i'm gonna say as much as the ladies are looking good and getting like their iconic looks the ladies look good. The men look good. <laughs> I've never been attracted to Cyclops before <laughs> to this level. It is, it is ridiculous. Like well, yeah, the men I've are literally seen, busting out of their outfits. I have it's, never seen Jim Lee draw a non-muscular guy. It's yeah, always it, like, even like the smallest of guys looks a little bit yeah. jacked with under a Jim Lee drawn. Here's the thing. They're swole, but everybody looks sexy. It's not yeah. just that they're swole. It's that every piece of Magneto's hair is artfully like pulled yeah. out as if like, let's take Superman's forelock and do that for every piece of hair. Cyclops, the accents yeah. on his outfit are just, let's just put this band right around the thigh. 
Forge is just giving like hot mechanic, which he always does, <laughs> but like kick it up. Even the version of Archangel that has been all apocalypsed is kind of hot. Like it's severe, <laughs> but <laughs> it doesn't look as menacing. Like in other things, like you feel sad, like, oh, you're not pretty anymore. Like you're not giving like traditional mm. whatever, like blonde with the wings. Like this version is like, okay, I see you. Yeah. <laughs> like follow me, fallen angel. It is Bobby is shoulders, shoulders, shoulders. It's everybody is just serving, serving, serving. Right. All I can say, listener, like this is regardless of even if you're ace, I feel like this book will please you visually just because there's so much in everyone's energy. But also every character, it definitely feels like a season finale. It does feel like a season finale. And you're trying to give every character their moment. And that is what's happening, especially in the first three. Jim Lee had a good team with him. You know, Scott Williams, a guy, nobody inks Jim Lee better than Scott Williams. And this may have been one of their first big like projects together. And then the colors by Joe uh, Russis, they just pop. They make the, the, some of the most odd color choices seem like, yeah, that totally works. And it's because all the colors are used. Like every color is used in this book. And of course, for people who haven't read the story before, as we said, it's Claremont's kind of swan song to the X-Men at the time. He would get to come back a decade later to do more X-Men stuff. But at the time, it was a swan song. He thought it was going to be the last time he was going to write it. So he told a story of a Magneto who kind of had given up on the idea of mutants taking their rightful spot at the top of the food chain, you know, that dream. And he's kind of become a recluse in Asteroid M. But there's a small group of mutants that are trying to make it to Asteroid M who are being followed by S.H.I.E.L.D. agents into space. And Magneto, because he's got so much power, kind of grabs both groups. It's like it's like the dad going up to the two kids fighting and grabbing them both by the scruff of the neck going, hey, kids, stop fighting. I'm in charge here, you know? <laughs> and he basically brings them into the, the Asteroid M and basically says, okay, all you guys are going to work for me now or you're going to get the hell out. And, uh, of course, Fabian Cortez is introduced. And he's like, well, we came here because we want to be you know, your team. We believe in mutant supremacy. We believe in, you know, the rights for mutants. We believe in your dream. And we Mag believe the flat scans are trash. Yeah, yeah. flat scans. Yeah. <laughs> and that thing, Magneto goes, flat scans? And like, that's what we call the, the you know, the non-mutants, the, the homo sapiens. And it's sort of like very much like, oh, is that what you kids are calling them on Twitter these days? You know, yeah. <laughs> And so, of course, this leads to all the world powers getting all uppity because they're like, stuff happened up in space with Magneto. Is he going to pull some shit? Magneto, in order to kind of protect himself, takes the nuclear warheads from Russia, eight of them, and kind of just transports them up to Asteroid M to go be like, you got your nukes, I got mine. Yeah, classic Cold War style of, uh, I got my shit pointed at you, you got, you got your shit pointed at me. What are you going to do? And Nick Fury suggests, hey, instead of us all killing each other, why don't we send the X-Men up there to talk to him? And the X-Men go up, and they bring along with them Moira McTaggart. And she, of course, was 
aside from being a scientist and being involved with the X-Men for years, there was a period where Magneto in the past was reduced to infancy and she kind of took care of Magneto at the time. I may or may not have put a suggestion or two into his brain saying, you're going to be a good boy, Magneto. Like, I've done the surgery to make sure that'll happen. I've fucked with your brain so that you're going to be a good boy. And so Magneto now questions all the good stuff he did, like the joining the X-Men and becoming part of the new, the mentor for the New Mutants and all that sort of stuff, thinking, wait a second, was I being mind controlled at that time by the suggestions put in my head by Mortimer McTaggart? Okay, well, with these X-Men here, you're going to do that to them. They're going to be following me. And, of course, she does that. And this kind of leads to a rescue mission of X-Men versus X-Men, which is always kind of the classic go-to for Claremont. He did it a few times throughout his run. And uh, leads to an epic showdown on Asteroid M. The fight stuff, it's almost too much. Like, visually, it's very overwhelming. And there's a point sort of, I'd say, at the back half of issue one where everything you explained in the beginning would probably make sense to somebody if they pick this up now. It feels like almost the dialogue and the imagery are fighting for supremacy, much Mm -hmm. like Magneto and Charles and the mutants and the flat scans. There is so much happening. Most comic books... Not to generalize, but okay, a lot of comic books from the big, you have like story, 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 normal panel breakdown. And then you have like your moments where you have like a big splash and like a enter character X, like very Hamilton enter me. <laughs> this is every single one of the people we know and even some of the people we may not know. They all have their moment. So it's like every third page you're having almost like a big, like, boom, here's Rogue flying through the air foot arch boom here's wolverine like i'm tiny but i'm angry and i'm sharp like gambit it's it's squinty it's kinetic energy it's tingly yeah oh yeah the training montage at the beginning yeah like that's all about hey here's here's superhero poses for everybody they're coming out of the page yeah yeah it's gene giving angles 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 and her weird daughter not daughter energy with charles it's charles <laughs> just eyebrows 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 and oh no i would never read someone's mind without the consent except i do all the time yeah this was all <laughs> we're talking about redesigns before this was the introduction of charles xavier's little hover chair like the yellow hover chair that he's now become synonymous with the amount of yellow in this run <laughs> and the uses of yellow it's used for everything it's like it's pumping up costumes in ways that became like part of their identity visually mm. for a whole generation. It's giving explosions. It's giving light in like some of the darker panels. It is doing a lot. Like what the yellow accents sort of do throughout this. It's an announcement. It's like, this is what we are now. This is our accent color. Yeah. Like, it's very like on Wednesdays we wear pink. Like it's happening. It's like on like, every day we wear yellow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's doing a lot. And, and any character that's actually blonde, they really lean into it even more. It's just doing so much. And I love the fact that normally some panels that feel this busy, I find overwhelming, but this was one where 
I would almost say you want to have this in some kind of omnibus, but you also, it's a lot easier to read, guided read, panel by panel, digital, because she's doing the most. <laughs> You're getting epic speeches. You're getting lines and moments and theories that resonate for runs in the future. You're getting stuff that like when you read it, you think, did this writer on this show that I just like read this and like it was in their hindbrain when they're there's a moment maybe it was like you were asleep when I led my strike group to Genosha you were asleep like I read that I'm like it's giving Andor it's it's so (laughs) much you get all of course you get the whole Magneto like why am I the way I am like the him and Charles of it all with Moira there and if you read this and then go back and read some of the beginning of the new Krakoa stuff, this is the ancestor without which like that whole kind of the many lives of Moira thing. This is taking something from the past that is doing so much and so weird and so wild and so visual. And you can feel even the politics happening behind the scenes and it like grounds it again. Yeah. It's a lot y'all. It's yeah, a lot. It actually does kind of showcase a trait of Magneto's that a lot of people don't talk about is that Magneto has a strong conviction, in his belief, he believes this thing, but if he meets someone that basically quotes his views back to him verbatim and is a mirror of his views, he can easily be led by them. He can easily be deceived by them. Fabian Cortez basically tells Magneto everything he wants to hear. And they get, this gets him close enough to basically destroy Magneto. And it isn't because he's against Magneto. It's because he wants to turn Magneto into a martyr so that he can get all the praise as a prophet for a now dead mutant. Magneto trusts too much. If you tell him the things he likes to hear, he goes, okay, here's all the keys to the kingdom. And that's always his undoing. That's why Magneto ends up always dying like every 10 years or so. Because somebody gets, you know, gets too close because he gets wowed by the uh, the shiny stars that make him feel all happy inside. Because it's like, oh, somebody is, you get me, you understand me. And the person's like, yeah, I get you well enough that I can manipulate you. One of the other things this book does so well with both the visuals and the dialogue is reinforces that dichotomy, that conversation that Charles and Manny are constantly having of what is the right way to protest yeah yeah (laughs) where you know charles is like let's write letters let's kneel and magneto's like yeah that's not gonna do it and that constant conversation between them that they have literally in front of the children Mm -hmm. whether or not people are being uh brainwashed tricked whatever this is a real i hate the phrase both sides except when i'm reading x-men and dealing with Charles and Xavier, because this is where it actually makes sense. Because you see that Charles understands that certain power structures will respond aggressively if threatened at all, and you need to approach them in a certain way, where Magneto is like, yeah, but even one mutant being oppressed or murdered just because they're a mutant for no other reason, like, that's it. Like, his line is... 
at the first, not at the tenth, not at the right. It's a zero tolerance policy. Yeah, and once he and that line is way in the rear view for him, so he's not like, oh, you can't bring me back around by like one reasonable person. So this constant kind of conversation between the two of them, where you know he's even using some of his surrogates to kind of try to reinforce it, and he's not even trying to convince Charles anymore. He's just like. By the way, I'm narrating what I'm doing right now while I'm about to mess you up. Right. And it's very clear for anybody reading this that it's always going to be a challenge and it kind of sets up warfare for the ages and it allows some of our favorite characters to kind of guilt free switch sides back and forth because they both have points. Points were made. And it it does that whole, like, everybody talks about, like, is it like a Martin Luther King kind of Malcolm X situation? It's any kind of, like, I'm trying to be, you know, moderate centrist versus I realize that we've tried that and it's failed. Right, right. And then Fabian Cortez comes along and takes advantage of it and destroys this nice conversation between (laughs) these, these two ideologies. Fabian Cortez forms the acolytes under the pretense of we're going to go join Magneto. But somehow he was able, like I thought that at first when I was reading the book, the first time and even this time, I was like, okay, so all these other acolytes are faking it the way Fabian is. It's like, no, no, they're true believers. They stay on the damn asteroid. Or Magneto's like, well, I can't leave and this thing's going to blow up. And they're like, okay, we'll stay with you. Meanwhile, Fabian Cortez is out there in escape pod being like, haha, I'm going to use you to get famous now. That's basically what it was. And Xavier at the end there, because again, he's, as you've always referred to it, his, his boyfriend is going to die. He wants to find a way to help. He's like, maybe we can get you back to Earth. Or maybe, and Magneto is like, no, we're done here. You guys are free to go. We fought. We have different opposing views, but I don't hate you. But I'm going to die now. I'll see you later. And the X-Men go back to Earth and with the death of Magneto and the Acolytes, that's kind of Claremont kind of saying, like, this is my swan song. This is this is me. You, you guys are going to go on, but I'm going to be up here on Asteroid M. It's going to explode. I won't be here with you. And that's the closest thing he had to a, a goodbye. So also quote from Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. There was no goodbye in the letters column. There was no announcement to the press. Almost overnight, Claremont was without illusions about corporate loyalty. When an interviewer expressed surprise at the seemingly sudden end of his 16-year tenure, Claremont reminded him that comics were exempt from the rules of straight publishing in which genre fiction authors owned their franchises. What you have is a corporate disagreement between an employee and a supervisor. And in that light, the course of action becomes as clear as inevitable. The corporation instinctively supports the supervisor. So Claremont was done. And this is, you know, at the exact same time that the first issue comes out in August 1991. As we said, highest selling comic issue of all time, selling over 8 million copies. The variant covers helped, but also That's what I was about to say. How did they do it? Because the, <laughs> they, they were the first of four covers was released on the 16th. Then each following week, they released a new cover for the next three weeks. Then on the fifth week of it all, whereas those other covers were all 150, they released the gatefold cover that connected all four covers at a 395 price point. So it's like you could buy each of the covers, line them up, and a lot of people did, 
And then they released, oh, we got a cover that's got all of them. And people were invested by that point. I want to buy that one too. And it is the kind of the third book in the history of this whole price point plan to sell millions of copies. Spider-Man number one came out by Tom McFarlane that sold 2 million copies. Then you had X-Force number one sold 5 million copies. And then this one came out over 8 million copies and it kind of cemented what would become known as the comic boom where speculators were thinking you got to buy comics uh, to sell them later. And everybody was buying comics out the wazoo. And this was the kickoff of the variant covers becoming a thing. So at that point, everybody starts doing variant covers. If you're looking for the first shot fired in the speculator boom, that's it right there. Definitely the most valuable Beanie Baby of comics. Yeah. (laughs) One of the things that I think about, because, you know, the MCU is always top of mind. Fun ways you could bring people back now that they've introduced multiverse. Mm-hmm. I would love RDJ as like an old Forge. Well, Forge is indigenous. this version of Forge. Yeah, this version of Forge though is giving kind of an RG RDJ look. He's giving an RDJ look, but you got to remember RDJ didn't look like that then. So yeah, and it was very by that point it was very much established that Forge was indigenous. I just. I think I think definitely now, if you were like, hey, RDJ is Forge, I think you could get quite the backlash. They'd be like, wasn't Tropic Thunder enough for you? You know, so. That's kind of why it worked. Listen, <laughs> this is a run that includes, <laughs> this is a run that includes the Betsy Braddock version of Silence. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Listen, again, variant, just a quickie. Like, I don't want him to be like. <laughs> Normal Forge, just like, you know, I like the Krasinski, like Reed Richards, but I don't need that in my real movies. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I get you. He's I get just, because he's, he is essentially just, you know, a mechanic with a mustache. And I kind of like that for him. But all of the visuals, it, it definitely felt like we're almost going to show you Chris Claremont. It's not just about your stories. We'll just like put extra covers on this, make all this money. But you couldn't have sold that many if the first, read wasn't good yeah i'd say yeah i i'd I'd agree with that definitely not that many you're right yeah you're right totally like if people read the book and they were all like this is trash this is crazy you wouldn't have had those numbers but you gotta remember jim lee art was at that time like people were going insane for it so the idea of getting oh a different cover from jim lee like they were kind of creating their own hysteria over jim lee at the time like not even just the artwork of jim lee but the marketing of jim lee as but i get it like the art it's so horny and (laughs) when you get into some of the space stuff and i'm just like how are you gonna make people look sexy in spacesuits or you're just gonna make it like a see-through panel at the front (laughs) yeah yeah why didn't i use the spot to check out their abs yeah yeah like you can just see everyone's everything all at once through the front panel of their spacesuits, which is just fantastic. Also, the way they both wrote and visually portrayed Storm, we know she's powerful, but sidebar claustrophobia. But this is where like every panel she's in, it's like, oh, this is your leader. Yeah. Not alternate leader, not your leader. Scott's not available, not your whatever. It's like, and that her hair constantly looks like it's just uplifted by the wind that she's controlling. It's like she's not even thinking about it. Oh it's just God. so great. Yeah. 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 
Oh my God. Well, so yeah, so that was Claremont leaving the book at the time. So Bob Harris needed to find Jim Lee, a new scripter. And so where does he go? He decides to go to the guy that helped Claremont make the X-Men famous, John Byrne. John Byrne at the time was working on his creator-owned comic, Next Men. Wonder where he got that name. Uh, over at Dark Horse. And he wasn't 100% sure how the sales were going to go because it was a new entity for him. So when he was offered this job, he was like, okay, so Next Men will be my, you know, my fun job. And this job here will pay the mortgage. But it didn't go exactly as Byrne had planned because... The problems that Claremont had was working with Lee, Byrne also had. Now, once again, quoting from Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. The pages were arriving piecemeal, three at a time, and every time another fax came through, the plot would take an unexpected turn so that Byrne would have to rewrite the previous pages. He found his breaking point when Harris called and asked him to script an entire issue overnight. Byrne refused. Something's got to be done about this, he told Harris. This is insane. We'll take care of it, Harris assured him, then hung up the phone and hurried over to Fabian Nicias's office. So he walks into Fabian Nicias's office and goes, I need this script overnight. Byrne can't do it. Can you do it? And to his credit, Fabian Nicias said, fuck you. No, man. Like, that's a lot to drop on my table. And he's like, well, I need somebody to script this book tonight. And just so happens at that exact same time, Scott Lobdell is walking through the hallway. Scott Lobdell was there always angling to try to find freelance jobs at Marvel. He was a stand-up comic. He wanted to break into the comics business. He had done some work at Marvel. And Fabian just pointed out the door and said, ask him. And so he walks out and says, hey, do you want to write the X-Men? Do you want to script this, this, uh, this comic? And Scott Lobdell goes, yeah. And after that, Scott Lobdell was now given the job and John Byrne was released. And so John Byrne then knew after that, that when somebody says, we'll take care of it, it's just basically their nice way of saying, we're going to find somebody who's willing to do the shit job that you won't. And yeah, so it's an interesting kind of situation to come into here. So the first official story, Omega Red, first official story plotted completely by Jim Lee. And... Some of these pages, while they look amazing, some of their layout of like, you know, eyes following the story when it comes to panel reference, a little bit confusing, like the basketball game. There's a little bit of clarity missing in the way that's laid out on how to follow it on the page. What I like about the basketball game is Rogue's outfit. Right, Rogue's outfit's great. It's like, why do you need a crop top when you're like head to toe bodysuit? Just cause. Just cause. Just, Just cause. cause it looks cute. Yeah. Cause as then was you won't, the style of the time. Yeah. Cause it won't look like you're battle ready. Jim Lee, an Asian man, has jubilation with blue eyes. Like it's just something yeah, that they I did throughout the comics. But you know what? That's cool. Whatever. Do you. I do want to point out now. So though, much crotch. So <laughs> much crotch. I want to point out that Jim Lee didn't do the colors. It was, uh, it was Joe Rossus. So he's the perpetrator of giving Jubilee blue eyes. I just realized that now. Yeah, it's Joe's fault. That's true. That's true. Yeah. But also, just like, this just shows collaboration is also an issue. Is Jim Lee slow or is them changing their whole way of working because they were on the outs with Claremont resulting in 
obviously you're going to be slower if you're not drawing to a script that's already laid out. And should it have always been one way or the other? Probably not. And it should depend on the team. But they yeah. weren't setting up teams. They were literally writing about a team, but working in isolation. This brings us to this story, the introduction of another big character in the 90s, Omega Red. The villainous Omega Red, product of a covert communist experiment to create a new kind of killing machine. They was basically their attempted answer to Captain America. But it turns out they've made him too strong. The slightest touch of Omega Red can kill you. Being in his presence can make you sick. He is just uber-powerful and kind of is the prototype of the 90s villain, where it's just like, oh, this guy's way too powerful. There's a good chance that no hero's going to come out alive. And in some comics, that happened. In this comic, that wasn't the case, because, of course, his arch-nemesis is Wolverine, who his big power is. It's hard to kill the motherfucker, you know? <laughs> so it's just the way it is. And it becomes kind of a showdown between them, but we also get... Some espionage with the X-Men trying to break the other X-Men out. There was a big thing about one team of X-Men always trying to save another team of X-Men in these books. If you notice the pattern from first story to next, that was kind of the deal, is that somebody's always being captured and somebody's always trying to, to liberate them. Definitely. Once I note back to the basketball game, <laughs> just two years before, that's when we had... The beginning of the series of the Mars Blackman commercials that Spike Lee directed with Michael Jordan, not mm. Michael B. Jordan, but the Michael, Michael Jordan, Jordan. Yeah. the Air Michael Jordan, Jordan. Yeah. yeah, with the "It's got to be the shoes," yeah, like that slogan. So this whole look also very that, yeah, like yeah. even including like they do a Reebok like sole of the like shoe shot here. But it's very influenced by that time where you're starting to get the advent of like sports advertising as this is entertainment, but this is also like a way to advertise the players and the team. So you're getting to see in the game the different players, but also their powers in like a, a non danger room, non battle scenario. Also horny. Sorry. Back to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No. Hey. That, no. That yeah. the horniness is kind of something that the '90s is known for in comics. Because what's the joke? We always refer to it as the big tits, big pecs, big guns era, right? Everything was big, and Jim Lee was kind of like the guy that a lot of people were copying their style off of over the next decade. And what did he draw? He drew big tits, big pecs, big guns. Yeah, and also around. like just regardless of people's relationship they always Fenris in this part is just like your brother and sister right like this isn't like one of those weird couples it looks like it's very oh but that i feel like those two characters have always had that incestuous kind of oh yeah it's so flowers in the attic yeah they are the <laughs> like again they're the kids of aren't they the kids of baron von strucker so yeah it's like they're They've already got the weird, like, yes, we are, we are the Germans. We are the Nazis who are also in love. Like, that's kind of the, the vibe that they're giving. Yeah. That their power involves touching each other. It's always been kind of sus, but yeah. 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 So like this story kind of, it sets up Omega Red as this big villain who, um, what's the name of the, the guy that's pulling the strings from behind? 
Matsuo? Yeah, Matsuo, who also has beef with Wolverine. But he's trying to track down something that Wolverine, on a mission, stashed away that will give him the upper hand. And will and Omega Red also wants it. But that's kind of the key to him stop, like, you know, possibly dying himself. And so there's a MacGuffin in this, which is, it's always great when people are looking for a MacGuffin. There's some heated beef between Omega Red and Wolverine and Mateo. So like all of that is there. And you get some really cool drawings, of course. When you, as you are reading like later on, especially with the Scott Lobdell stuff, it very much feels like the writer is scripting, not 100% knowing what Jim Lee was going for. And because of that, with the inclusion of Sabretooth in the story, there's a lot of times where it seems like, oh, we made it that his dialogue is this because I didn't know what for what he would say at this point. You know, <laughs> that's kind of the vibe I got. Also, I kind of always just thought Matsuo hated Wolverine because he stole his barber. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it was it, Wolverine's barber first. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> looking at these it's like you spent so much energy making every character look their sexiest and super individual and giving everyone iconic looks but then you just gave these two men the same hairstyle i don't understand it's crazy it is crazy but i will say this the omega red story is kind of convoluted and simplistic at the same time but i'm not gonna lie it's a lot of fun is it the best X-Men story written? No, of course not. But it is a lot of fun. And I think that's what they were really banking on was the fact that a Jim Lee story is fun. You're not going to read a Jim Lee story, and at the, especially at this time, and at the end of it go, you know, I just, uh, I don't, it didn't really do anything for me. Usually, like, there's enough stuff happening on the page, as you mentioned, that you're going to get into something. And that was the big hope. That they're like, oh, this X-Men series is going to do that. And of course, selling gangbusters, number one. But within a year, Jim Lee would be gone from the book because he would be making the jump along with Todd McFarlane and Rob Liefeld and starting Image Comics. Now, of course, Fabian Nicieso was there and Andy Kuber was there to pick up the the slack and continue to tell great stories. But it's just kind of interesting that Bob Harris built his entire idea on the one nugget of Jim Lee. And within a year, and sure, it proved a great success, but within a year, his one nugget of an idea was gone. And he had to scramble and find other people to take his place. That, I feel, is kind of like the perfect karma for Bob Harris. Yeah, yeah, that's the and find out part. (laughs) (laughs) But hey, everybody went on to to big, big things. Everybody kind of, in the end, came out on top when it came to the X-Men. And these visual looks ended up getting uh, implemented in the animated show. And this is why this version, this run, even if you've never known anything about these books, if you were to read this and were a child of doesn't matter the 90s or not because it's all on disney plus now yeah you would feel like oh i i know some of this or this feels familiar 
it's because these are the looks that they were serving. And occasionally there's things that they do with a character, most notably date night for Rogue and Gambit. Oh, yeah. When she's she quite serving, the outfit, yeah. But she's serving Scarlet Witch. And even at one point in the fight, they call her witch. It's funny because I felt like she was serving Scarlet O'Hara there. That's basically. <laughs> well, her dialogue is O'Hara. Her outfit yeah. is witch. It's all Scarlet. It's great. Yeah. 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 But one thing I didn't mention is that, so the second story with Omega Red, you mentioned in the first arc, there's a lot of yellow. It was kind of like Jim Lee and Joe Rosas went, you know what? We need more yellow. And they brought back Wolverine's original costume, which he hadn't worn in the comics for 10 years, which is all yellow. <laughs> because he was brown in the first half. Yeah, because he was wearing yeah. the tan and brown, which is what he'd been wearing for a decade, ever since John Byrne came on the X-Men. And so, yeah, it's just kind of funny. It's like, we need more yellow. <laughs> There's so much yellow, like, just all throughout. Yeah. Every, like, Rogue's shirt, like, not rogue shirt, wrote the lining on rogue's dress, even on date night, it's yellow. Yeah. Um, Gambit's t-shirt. Like, so it's not just like the bright yellows that you're expecting in the chair. Like it's everywhere. It's yeah. very much like this is their signature accent color as a team. Yeah. And obviously Jubilee Jubilation is getting to do the most. Like some people wonder, like, why do people still care about Jubilee or why do they occasionally throw in a movie shouts to Atlanta Condor and then just give her nothing to do. It's because at this point, like she was that girl, like she was like the person for all the sort of teens reading to kind of glom on to. She's giving her mall look. She's got the sunglasses. It's she was again, the Robin with the big yellow jacket. She was the Robin of the group, the, the teen that you're supposed to identify. Abs- with. She had good information, thoughts and plans was up on the like modern lingo power set was very much just blind them and then we'll fight them. Like she was basically <laughs> the equivalent of a handful of sand that you would throw in someone's yeah, eye. Yeah. She's flash but, paper. That's basically. Yeah. <laughs> but she was sort of good in the tactical conversations. They didn't always listen to her. Yeah. But yeah, she's there on a lot of panels. It's like, you know, her beast of Wolverine. It's like Jubilee, Jubilation Lee. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. She was that girl. And she's been so underserved over the years, and it would be great to see a character like her get to have a come up. And that is one of the things that I do like about the new era, whether it's in the comics or the TV or movie. Like, they take these characters that have been underserved, Mm. because it's almost easier to give them, like, a soft reboot and give them the space that they possibly always deserved than to take the iconic characters like we've already seen great wolverine in all mediums that's tougher that's a tougher nut to crack yeah but we haven't seen a great live action jubilee i still think lena condor would have and possibly could still be who knows what's going on she has her you know dance background and whatever like she just does that off because jubilee was also in the comics had this like gymnastics background and whatever here's the thing you could go on a tangent you could do like a tight five on every single character in this run and still not run out of material oh yeah no totally totally and yeah it this is this is an iconic moment for the x-men and kind of is a career defining moment for the characters and Get going back and rereading these stories. I had a lot of fun. If you're looking for just a fun read, 
this is a fun read. And that's sometimes that's all you need. You know, some classic characters and a fun read, in my opinion. Absolutely. If you're going to ever do like a free trial, a one month of Marvel Limited, and you're looking to just do like a real smash and grab, like read the good stuff while you're in there and then actually remember to cancel it after one month, this is definitely a run to read. There you go. Definitely. Well, we come to the end of another episode of Back Issue Bloodbath. But Tula, where can people find you? At Inatif.com on Twitter and Hive at Obesakantawit, O-B-E-S-A-C-A-N-T-A-V-I-T, and here with you. Of course, you can find everything I do over at geekartshow.com. Follow me on Twitter at geekart. Follow me on Instagram at Andrew underscore of underscore geek underscore hard. Follow this very show on Facebook at Back Issue Bloodbath, where we post the new episode every week. Of course, the easiest way to make sure you don't miss an episode is to subscribe to us on your podcasting platform of choice. That way, every Wednesday when it drops, it goes right to you. And that's what we want. We want it to go right to you. We're farm to table here. That's what we're doing here. So definitely check it out and tell your friends. This has been Back to Your Blood Beth. I've been Andrew Young. I've been Batulineo. Have yourself a good. <laughs>